so Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 8, 28 is a Middle Bronze Age text about a God named Yahweh revealing his presence to a fugitive who will become a great nomadic tribal chieftain. So based on this genre alone, I would usually spend about 10 minutes to help you um, exit your your American suburban holiday hurriedness and enter into this ancient text. Usually I would have to spend a long time to take you from here to there, but this story, Genesis chapter 28, the story of Jacob's ladder, as it is often called, is so arresting, so timeless, so eerily and immediately applicable to our modern American suburban lives. I'm just going to let this text speak for itself. So let's, let's recap. Let's recap where we've been in the story of Jacob, if you're just joining us. Um, God showed up to a guy named Abraham. And Abraham, he said to him, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. And it's going to be specifically through your son, through a promised son of Abraham. The generation, generation after generation, there will be sons, that, a promised son that will come with each generation. So finally, there is the son of Abraham who will come and bless the whole world. That's the promise. And so Abraham had his promised son, Isaac. And Isaac um, grew up and got married to a woman named Rebecca. And then Rebecca got pregnant. With twins, it was a really hard pregnancy, you might recall. And the first one came out, and his name was Esau, Harry in Hebrew. And he was the firstborn son, the son of his father. And then the second one came out, and he was a heel. They named him Jacob. So by birth, by every social standard, by basic human decency, Esau should have received the blessing of Isaac. He should be the promised son. He had every right to claim every right to claim the right as the promised son of Abraham, Isaac. But the text said God loved Jacob. So last week we watched Jacob pretend to be Esau so that he could deceive his father, steal the blessing. And we stopped at the point where Isaac, the father, was violently shaking. He was so upset. And Esau was weeping uncon- uncontrollably. And then right after this scene, we see this, we see this scene where Esau's like, he, he consoles himself, he comforts himself by saying, I know what I'll do. As soon as dad dies, I'll kill him. I'll kill him. Rebecca hears this. Mom hears this. And goes to her son, you got to leave. Your brother's about ready to kill you. Like literally going to kill you. So she sends him off, run to Haran. That's her hometown. And she says, go there and find yourself a good Semitic girl. Like not one of those, like Esau had married these Hittite women, these Canaanite women that were terrible. They didn't like him at all. So we pick up the story. Verse 10. Genesis chapter 28, starting in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. All right, so Beersheba, Haran. Uh, Don't think road trip. Think Appalachian Trail here, except mostly through the desert. Like, if you Google this, like, literally, you can Google walking directions from ancient Beersheba to ancient Haran, and it says, according to Google, it's uh, 545 miles, and it'll take you approximately 179 hours to walk. It's like a month of hiking, and and this is back then, journeys of this sort were famously dangerous, difficult, harrowing, like, without water, might be attacked by bandits, and Jacob is making this trip all by himself. Verse 11, when he reached... A certain place. He stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head. Now, the Hebrew here is ambiguous. It could be under his head or he put his head beside it. We're not quite sure. And lay down to sleep. 
So I want you to feel what we're about ready to enter here. He comes to this place. In Hebrew, it's just literally the place. Jacob finds himself in the place. And this place has precious little to do with geography and almost everything to do with where he's at psychologically, spiritually, and relationally. So feel this. Your life has come crashing down. You're completely alone in the world. You just ruined your family. Your dad doesn't love you. Your brother's literally trying to kill you. You're heading to someplace you've never been before. And when you get there, you don't know this yet, but you're about ready to enter into a trap. And you come to a certain place, any place, just like a thousand other places you've already passed. Darkness is overtaking you and you dare not go any further. So you find a rock and we aren't sure whether you lay your head down on the rock like a pillow or you hide behind it in the fetal position, but it doesn't really matter, does it? The point is you're desperate. So desperate you might use a rock as a pillow. So desperate you might huddle in the fetal position behind it. And here is the place Jacob finds himself in, alone in the dark, afraid, guilty, uncomfortable, vulnerable, running from his past, unsure of where life is headed, and desperate. And the narrator brings us to the place to force the question, have you ever been there? Do you know the place he's talking about? Now, I would guess that all of us have been to a place like that at some point. I hope you haven't set up a permanent residence there. Some of you might be there now. This can be a terrible place, a place of meaningless, depre- meaninglessness, depression, insecurity, hardship, suffering, grief, the place where life loses all of its meaning and passion. So um, before we moved up here, we lived in Dallas, Texas for 10 years, and when we were first married, we lived in a multi-million dollar neighborhood. I mean, place, wealthy, wealthy people, ridiculously wealthy. And um, down the road was Ross Pro, if you know him. And then a, a couple streets over was George W. Bush. Of course, we did not live in the mansion, though. We lived in the back house. I was literally the cabana boy. I was called that multiple times. We were the help. And, uh, and the woman who lived in, who owned the property, though, she was filthy rich. She, her first husband had been an oil tycoon, like think private planes and Rolls Royces, okay? Um, and her second husband, who she was with when we moved in, he, um, he, while she was going on a trip, he decided to leave her for another woman. She came home and we had to tell her. In order to soothe herself, in order to try and clear her headspace, some of her cabillionaire friends decided, hey, I got, I got this. We're going we're gonna to put this behind you. We're going to take you on a trip. So they took her on this luxury, um, luxury cruise in France. Like th- this type of thing that you'd only imagine like rock stars and billionaires going on, right? So they literally were going to have like this personalized famous chef for them and all this in some river in France. And it was going to be luxurious. And they came back and we were so like, what was it like? Like we're just imagining like this luxury cruise in France with famous chefs and stuff like that. And I'll never forget what she said. She said that they served us the most expensive champagnes in the world you can drink. We had a famous chef cook every dish for us personally. And I couldn't taste any of it. She felt nothing tasted nothing, and couldn't enjoy anything. She may have been on one of the finest luxury yacht cruises in the world, but that's not what she was experiencing because that's not where she was at. For her, it was just a place. 
not unlike the place Jacob finds himself in. And while this place will never be comfortable, it's not always terrible. It can also be exciting. So for one person, it feels like they just got thrown out of an airplane. For the next person, it feels like, I'm skydiving. I've always wanted to do this, right? So different experiences for different people. But this is important to understand this place a little bit. The, the anthropologist, anthropologist Victor Turner um, did a study that kind of gives us some language for this. He describes this place using the word, this place using the word liminality or liminal space. The word liminal has to do with limits or thresholds. And, and it's, he describes this, this place where you're, you, you've crossed one threshold, but you've not yet crossed the next threshold. You're solidly in between two spaces. You're on a journey. You're not who you were, but you're not yet who you will be. And he, he found this, came up with this term from studying these tribal people. They would raise their sons in, you know, they would be with their mamas all day long, really safe in community. And then one day when the boys got like adolescent age, they would rip them away from their mothers and they would send them off as a group into the jungle, away from their society, away from their mothers. They did all kinds of like torturous things to them. And if they survived, they had to survive on their own. If they survived, when they came back, they came back men. And now, now, he noticed, he studied this, and he noticed that something happened to these boys, something that psychologically, like deeply internally changed these boys from the time, in just that two-week period, from the time when they were with their mothers and completely helpless in that society to when, when they came back. Something about that experience totally changed these boys, and he... And he this is where he came up with this term liminal or liminal space because he noted that this is a common human experience. Not getting ripped away from your mother and sent on a rite of passage in the jungle, but entering into those in-between spaces. You cross one threshold in life. You're no longer who you were, but you're not yet who you will be. And that time becomes a really powerful way of transforming us. It's when you're neither here nor there. You're no longer who you were, but you're not who you will be. When everything feels up in the air, when you feel like you've lost any sense of place, belonging, meaning, direction, you're unsure of what you'll find when you get there. It's going off to college, moving out on your own, retirement, getting married, getting divorced, a sudden loss, starting a whole new career, ending your career. It's going on a mission trip to Bulgaria and having your whole world turned upside down. It's cancer, burnout, heart, heart attack, depression, panic attack, unexpected pregnancy, on and on we could go. While it's almost always that place you enter into, while it's almost always a challenging place, it is also the place where we are most likely to grow as a person, the place we are most likely to experience deep transformation, and the place we are most likely to meet God. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth and its top reaching to the heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, Jacob sees a stairway. Traditionally, this is translated ladder, um, but it, but remember, we're reading a Middle Bronze Age text, so you shouldn't think like an, an aluminum extinction ladder here. Um, it's most likely what Jacob saw is a ziggurat. Here's an example of a ziggurat from ancient Ur. Um, this, this idea of a ziggurat, these stairways to heaven, the stairway that Jacob is seeing isn't just a set of stairs or just a ladder. It's a temple complex. It's, it's God's kingdom. It's a place where God is enthroned and his will is enacted and the angels going up and down, descending and ascending and descending. These are God's emissaries. They are workers. They're bringing God's word, his plan, his will down to earth to enact it and reporting back to him. This is, this is a daily commute. This is 76. This is going into Philly in the morning. 
The point is stark. Jacob, here in this generic place, in this place that feels like no place at all, God is at work. Here in the place of fear and insecurity and guilt and broken families and isolation and the unknown, God is at work. He is in control. He is moving. And none of this is accidental. There, above it, stood the Lord. The Hebrew is ambiguous here. So if you have the NIV or ESV translations, you'll see a little footnote. And it said it could say, beside him. So it it either means um, God was standing above the ladder, above the stairway, or beside the ladder. Or it could mean he was standing above Jacob or beside Jacob. I personally think it probably means he was standing beside Jacob. But grammatically, all of those are really possible. One thing that no one questions about this text, though, is that Jacob, when God shows up, is surprised. Like the Hebrew uh, scholar Victor Hamilton translates the same passage And lo, Yahweh standing beside him. Like it changes voices and and he kind of shouts at the beginning. Um, Now, there are lots of reasons why he might be surprised. I think any of us might be surprised if suddenly Yahweh showed up standing beside you. But right here, there's this particular reason about Jacob's situation that makes it surprising, a bit more precarious than most of us. God just showed up as he's running away for his life because he lied to his father and stole the blessing. He's a fugitive. He is guilty. He feels ashamed. He just ruined his family. And lo, God just showed up. But listen to what God has to say to this fugitive. And he said to him, I am the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, granddad and dad. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and they will spread out to the west and the east and the north and the south. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. So revel in this. Yahweh is not like some title. It's not like God or Lord or Almighty. It's his personal name. It's like my personal name is Paul. Yahweh shows up. And he personally shows up and listen to what he has to say to this sinner, this fugitive, this person who just ruined his life. He blesses him. He says to Jacob, I'm the God of your grandfather and the God of your father. And whether you've come to grips with it or not, I'm going to be your God too. Isn't this just like God? You expect Jacob deserves God to cut him down to size, to like have a sinkhole open up and swallow him whole or something terrible to happen to him, but it doesn't. Instead, he is intimate and he greets him like a friend, like a father who runs to embrace his prodigal son and kisses him and declares, let's slaughter the fattened calf and have a party. My son who is dead is now alive. Verse 15. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. In Hebrew, it's uh, the I is repeated. I am with you, and I will watch over you, and I will bring you back, and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Jacob, you think you're all alone. You think that you've ruined your life. You think that everything's up to you to solve. You think that this place is just brutal and empty and meaningless, but you're wrong. You're wrong. I am with you. 
Now, these words, these four words right here, might just be the most important words you'll ever hear. I've heard for years uh, Hebrew scholars argue that, um, that the greatest promise of the Scriptures is not, I will save you, but it's actually, I am with you. I will be with you. And I think, as I've gone through these scriptures over myself over the last 20 years, I think there's something to this. So so Genesis chapter 2. What makes the Garden of Eden paradise? Is it that you can be naked and drink pina coladas all day? The answer is no, because people do that, and that ain't paradise. Right? You can be on a luxury cruise in France, and it be hell. So what makes Eden paradise? Eden is paradise because he's there. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. They really mean that. Where he is, that's where paradise is. Paradise has precious little to do with geography and everything to do with where we're at psychologically, spiritually, relationally. And according to the scriptures, that wholeness, that shalom is found with God. Exodus chapter 3, Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, I want, or, or comes to, God comes to Moses and says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses is like, I can't do that. And God says, I will be with you. And he says, but I'm like an octogenarian sheep herder. And he says, I will be with you. And then he says, but I, I'm terribly terrified by, by speaking in public. And he says, I will be with you. And then he reveals his sacred name at the burning bush, Yahweh. Now, that's most commonly translated, I am that I am. But if you study Hebrew, you know that this could equally be translated, I will be with you. His very name is a promise. I am with you. Now, why is this so significant? I'm not sure that we can put this into words. Why is personal presence so important? Like when when I'm grieving or celebrating or facing the unknown or in this liminal space, why is it so important to know that someone is with me? What is that? So just the other day I was running and listening to one of my podcasts and um, I I got this great, uh, Emily from our staff recommended to me this great um, podcast by this neurotheologian who studies like neuroscience, theology, and how those two come together. And in that he was talking with this psychologist about trauma or PTSD, and how there are things like, like you, people will experience something and it literally like almost scars the brain. You'll have it and your brain will get caught in a rut so that you experience something horrific and you can't help it. You get caught in this vortex. You experience it over and over and over again. And you'll have these moments where you'll just smell something or see something and whatever it is, it triggers that in your brain and you're back in that space. It's called trauma, PTSD. They said, now, what we found, though, is that some people will have that experience and have trauma for years to come, that they have to go through all kinds of psychotherapy to try and work out. And then others will have the exact same experience, maybe the exact same moment, and it'll just be a really bad day, a really bad memory. And so what's the difference? What's the difference between the person who's traumatized and the person who's not? And the answer, get this, is the presence of an empathetic other. You need to know someone else is with you in this. Your brain needs to know that you're not all alone, that someone cares, that someone feels what you're feeling, that they see you. So do you know the story of Job? Guy in the Old Testament who Satan was like, 
the only reason he's following you, God, is because you give him all this stuff. So God says, let's see. So Satan goes and takes everything away from him. He, his family's dead. His possessions are gone. His health is ruined. He's sitting on like this pile of rubble, picking his, his scabs with broken pottery. And then his friends come to comfort him, and they end up making it worse. You know the story? And then at the end of that, after we go through all of that, um, how does God answer Job for like, why did you do this, God? When Job says, God, why? Why did I have to suffer all this and go through all this? Does God explain himself? And the answer is, nope. God's answer to Job is that he shows up. His presence is the answer. One of my favorite examples, if you've been around GVF for any time, you you might recall this. My favorite example is probably um, the uh, the monkey stress test. Do you guys remember this monkey stress test? So you take a monkey, and nice little monkey, he's having fun. You put him in the cage. Oh, we're gonna have fun! And then suddenly you're like, Bah! You're like shock, shock. Put all these lights and loud noises and stuff. You scare him to death. And then you pull out the monkey, measure his cortisol levels, which is the hormone that reacts to stress and helps calm you when you're stressed. And it like goes off the charts as you'd expect. And then round two. Oh, we're having a fun time. But this time, the one element you change is you, you put beside him a monkey buddy. Like, not just any monkey, but a monkey that he knows, his friend, the good friend. We're in this together. Uh, throw him in the cage, and then you do the exact same thing. Yeah! Scare him half to death. You pull him out, and his cortisol levels cut in half. Cut in half just by the presence of a monkey buddy. So a lot of people get frustrated with the fact that God doesn't answer our questions, and understandably so. Like, I can't believe in a God who would allow so much suffering. Like, why does this happen to me? Why do you allow evil in the world? Why is our world so broken? Why, 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 why? But God doesn't seem to think he needs to explain himself to us. Now, this could be, it could be that he doesn't care. Could be that he doesn't have any good answers. Or it could be because the best answer The only truly satisfying answer is one that cannot be put into words. Maybe what we really need is for God himself to show up, to enter into our world, experience what we're experiencing, and suffer with us. And whether we like that answer or not, that's the answer we get in the person of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Remember, before he ascends into heaven, before he goes back into heaven, what's the last word that Jesus says to us? on earth. He says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It sounds almost identical to what God said to Jacob. So when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. I thought I was alone. I thought that I had ruined my life. I thought that everything was up to me to solve. I thought this place was just brutal and empty and meaningless. I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. Jacob wakes up to the fact that God is here. He's in this place. And right now, he's working around him. Right now, in this place, in his hurt, in this brokenness, God is with him. And when he wakes up to this reality, it changes everything. Verse 17, he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. The house of God in Hebrew literally is the word Beth El. Bet means house, El, God, house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. The gate of heaven, like heaven's gates have opened wide. Like God's blessing is directly here with me. I have access to the God of the universe. Now this could just mean just 
a reference to the gate of heaven, but it's most likely that, um, that he's actually throwing the Babylonians under the bus when he says this. So do you guys know Babel, Babylonians, their history? So Genesis chapter 11, they were like, hey, I got this idea. Let's build a tower, a stairway to heaven. And they build this ziggurat in an attempt to get this VIP access to God. And the name Babylon, like we will go to heaven and we will burst open the gates of heaven. Literally, Babylon means gate of gods, gate of the gods. We're going we're gonna to open it up. The Babylonians thought they were powerful enough and wealthy enough and smart enough to build their own stairway to paradise, to force the gate of gods open. But here, Jacob is like, I found it. The gate of the gods, and it is not a gate that humans could open. This gate only opens from the inside, and the stairway to heaven can only be built from the top down, not the bottom up. That if God himself did not open the gate, if he himself did not come down, we would never find him, never find him, never find him. But thanks be to God, our God is a God who comes searching for us, a God who came down, a God who finds us, who is Emmanuel. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top, and he called the place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and I and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking and give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God, and this house, this stone that I have set up, uh, as a pillar will be God's house, and all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Scholar Walter Brugman points out that these four promises right here become the very foundational promises of the people of Israel, of, of the foundation of what a relationship with God looks like for the, the Hebrew people moving forward. It's God will be with me. God will watch over me. God will give me food to eat. God will bring me home. In fact, this has been popularized, Brugman points out, in a psalm that you might be familiar with. Let's see if you know this one. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. God will be with me. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God will watch over me. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. God will give me food to eat. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows, and God will bring me home. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord, Bethel, forever. Because where he is, that's paradise. That's where I want to be. Now, I want you to notice something here. Jacob is still in the same place he started. His circumstances haven't changed at all. He's still in the middle of nowhere on a difficult journey, running from his past into an unknown future, heading towards a trap that he doesn't even know about yet. His family's still ruined. He still has a rock for a pillow. He's still in the valley of the shadow of death. Nothing has changed, but everything's different. When he wakes up to God's presence in his life, it changes everything. Walter uh, Bruce Waltke summarizes the transformation this way. He says, the story, this story, Genesis 28, is filled with transformations due to God's presence. 
A man running away from home runs into God. A man afraid of his brother fears God. A certain place becomes nothing less than God's place. A rock becomes a temple. Night turns into morning. Canaanite loves becomes Bethel, the house of God. When the dream is fulfilled, this is at the end of Jacob's story, Jacob, the heel grasper, will become Israel, the one who prevails with God and humans. You see this, nothing has changed, but everything is different. And this seems to be the point. Jacob is the father of all who would follow him in faith. If you want to meet this God of Jacob and experience the transformation that Jacob experienced, you will likely have to go on the same journey that he went on. We not always, but almost always, meet God in those liminal spaces, in that brokenness, when you've lost everything that you thought you were, everything you thought you had. When we come to an end of, our, of who we are and aren't sure who we're going to be, or when we're alone, a dark, it's dark, we're afraid, guilty, uncomfortable, vulnerable, running from our past, unsure of where life is headed, desperate, in that place, that is where God works. And when God shows up in that place, and lo, Yahweh, he's here in the middle of that. When God shows up, that's what transforms us. The answer we most need might not be found in a self-help book, We need God himself to show up, not in judgment, but in blessing. We need to hear, I'm with you. We need to feel, I'm with you in this, in your fear, in your insecurity, in your pain, in the unknowns. And when we wake up to this reality, he is with me. His kingdom is at hand. He's working all around me, and I didn't even know it. He knows what I'm going through. He, he will go with me. He will protect me. He will bring me home. When we wake up to this reality and believe in faith, when we relax and trust that he has this and that he's really with us, even when we can't see it, that is a transforming experience and that is our invitation today. So at the beginning of the Gospel of John, this guy Jesus shows up on the scene. And, and Philip finds him and says, I think we found him. I'm pretty sure he's the Messiah. I'm pretty sure he's the promised son of Abraham that we've been waiting generation after generation after generation for. And he runs to his friend Nathaniel and says, hey, there's this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. I'm pretty sure he's the one. And Nathaniel, do you remember his response? He's like, Nazareth? Have you met anybody good from Nazareth? Makes me feel okay for all those bad things I said about Spring City. And Philip says to him famously, come and see. So he does. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no, no deceit. Do you, do you get the joke going on here? Here's ne- Jacob was a deceiver. Here's someone, though, who follows him who's in whom there's no deceit. Nathanael says, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, we don't know what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree. Some think that he was meditating. It's possible. There's some reason to believe that. And he could have been meditating on Genesis 28 as a godly man. Others see their, the reference of being under the fig tree in some cases um, reads kind of like, you know, um, under the bleachers, those high schoolers. What are you doing under the bleachers? 
You know what I'm talking about? Where, where bad things happen. Illicit. So they think he might be under the fig tree. I saw you under the fig tree. Could mean that. Exactly. We don't know. But we do know that Nathaniel is utterly shocked when Jesus says that. When Nathaniel, then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So it must have been something big, whatever was happening. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. And then he added, very truly, I tell you, plural, y'all, everyone who hears this right now, he's not just talking to Nathaniel. If you hear his voice, he's talking to you. Very truly, I tell all of you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He says, you know that thing that Jacob saw, that stairway to heaven, that gate of God, that work of the kingdom of God, that promise that I am with you? That's me. If you, plural, all of you, if you follow Jesus, you will see this is true in your own life. You will experience that God is present with you. You will see that this work is already happening all around you. You will realize that he's already come down in search of you. You will see this. You will feel this. You will know this. And you will be transformed. Now, this story is too great and too mysterious and too real to life to be boiled down to a few like self-help steps. I don't want to ruin it like that, but I do want to give you some practical tidbits. And it's simply this. We cannot force God to come down and show up in our lives any more than the Babylonians could by building their stairway to heaven and prying open the gates of God as they tried. That's not possible. We cannot do that, but we can grow in awareness of God's presence. That's what we practice before every sermon. We can ask him, in the words of the Apostle Paul, open the eyes of my heart. We can learn to recognize his work by studying how he works in scripture. We can deepen our ability to appreciate his presence. We can worship in response to his presence. We can set up pillars in our life that say, God met me here and I can't deny it. I've seen him. He's shown up in the past. So I know that he really is at work in my life because he promised to. And we can tithe. That's what Jacob does. Not, it's not about the money. It's a recognition that everything I have all this work in my life is actually his work, and I'm just recognizing him and doing that. Now, I don't particularly want to tell you what to do, but if I had to pick one thing, it would be about prayer. Not reciting a list of everything you want God to do for you, but setting aside time every single day, every single day, even maybe setting a clock to remind you to enter into God's presence, to recognize his presence in your life, to show you how he's already working, not to, to bring all of your stuff to God, although that will probably come out, but to ask him to speak into your life, to ask him to show you how he's already working, how he's already come after you, how he feels about you, to let you feel and trust his presence in your life. Now this, if this is not something you're used to regularly doing, now's a great time to try it out. This is Advent season. It's the season where we celebrate. Emmanuel, God with us. It'd be a great time to start. If you um, if you need a guide for this, John Piper has this free guide online. We'll send out the uh, the link later on. It's just entitled "Good News of Great Joy," and it's a daily guide that helps you experience God with us every day for 25 days leading up to Christmas. 
what tool you use is not the point. The point is that you actually set aside time to ask God to reveal his presence in your life, to show you how he's already working, and to let you feel and trust his presence in your life. Can I tell you, that is the place of transformation. His presence is what life is all about. It's what you're created for, and it's where you're headed. To be distracted and numb to that is to miss out on the whole point of life. Now, having said all this, I want to acknowledge that while faith and transformation, they are part and parcel to the experience of everyone who wants to follow Jesus and knows the God of Jacob. Like, that is what it's about. Faith, it, it's, it's God showing up and us responding in faith. That is where transformation is at. But I also want to say that if you follow the God of Jacob, that our faith, just like Jacob's faith, is almost always mixed with some doubt. If you look back at Jacob's response here, Jacob made a vow and said, if God will be with me, it's emphatic in Hebrew, and if he'll watch over me and if he'll give me food and so that I return safely, then I will worship if, if. And the great scholar Walter Brugman has his closing comments on this chapter, which I think are helpful. He says, Jacob's response strikes one as a genuine act of faith. But Jacob will be Jacob. Even if this solemn, even in this solemn moment, he still sounds like a bargain hunter. He still adds an if. So if your faith includes an if, cheer up. You're in good company. But God is not yet done with Jacob, and God is not yet done with you. Father, I pray as we enter into this season of Christmas and remember and celebrate and experience once again Emmanuel, God, with us and respond and worship. God, I pray that we'd be transformed by Jesus' presence. I want to pray specifically for those who are sitting out here right now or who are walking along someone right now who is in that liminal space, in that place where they just feel crushed. They don't know who they are. They don't know where they've been. God, I, I pray that you would, you would show up. And I pray like Jacob, they would wake up and say, God is in this place and I knew it not. I pray that they would experience your goodness and your blessing and pray this in Jesus' name.